Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our son and uh, wife Gloria, who live down in Seattle, um, have been in Germany the past 10 days visiting various uh, missionaries and national ministry leaders uh, in view of finding a place where they could serve the Lord uh, potentially in a, in a full-time missionary kind of uh, youth ministry. And uh, we supported their ministry by taking care of their boys for half the week. There's got to be a special jewel in that crown somewhere. Um... And of course, you know, we, this was planned some time ahead, and, and of course our other uh, lovely daughter decided to move this week, and, and so her twin sister said, well, I got to come and help too, and so all of a sudden we have seven kids in grandma and grandpa's house. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I'm the chief cook and bottle washer. Um, you know, little kids wake up going a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome to wake up that way? Whoa, where am I running to right now? I don't wake up that way. <laughs> I envy that. I wish I was like a small child in that way. There are some other ways I'm glad I'm not like a small child, like crawling behind the furniture and breaking things. There are many ways in which children need to grow up and become mature, and that's what parents are for, and we understand that, and that's, we love them and work with them on that basis. I believe when Paul, under God's inspiration, wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he was thinking of a bunch of spiritual children. The Corinthians, like little children, had a lot of energy for church, but not a lot of maturity. And so he writes this book touching on a series of issues that they had questions about. That's the second half of the book that we'll get to starting another week or so. But the first half of the book was a whole series of issues that they needed to grow up, some areas in which they needed to grow up and didn't know that they needed that maturity. We started into the second half of 1 Corinthians 6 a couple of weeks ago, just looking at the first, uh, the first little principle and the first uh, phrase here. All things are lawful for me, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And the God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members or connected to a prostitute? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Last week, we began looking at this first phrase, all things are lawful. It appears that several times in this passage, Paul is quoting what they were saying, and they may have been quoting him to begin with, and so we started this, with this teaching. We went back and looked at the Apostle Paul's teaching where he basically was trying to help them understand we are free from the requirements of the Old Testament law. Now, God's moral law never changes. You know, uh, 
certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and those things are all reemphasized in the New Testament. But the big bulk of the law had to do with the ritual requirements on worship, the ritual requirements on living, where, where the where you might say the the belief and the following of God was connected to a whole series of daily issues, that part of the law was relieved in Christ. And and so Paul taught that. Paul grew up under that law. He loved that law. He murdered Christians for that law. That's how zealous he was for it. But when he got saved, he said, I'm not bound by that anymore. I don't need it. And so we looked at his teaching through several places in the New Testament epistles where he says, we are free from following the law. But the Corinthians listened to that. We are free. All things are lawful. And they came up with this phrase. All things are lawful became we can do anything we want. And of course, that what they were doing was living in sin and using the scripture to justify it. You know, you can pick up the, the common mantra of our society today, which is life is all about being happy, and slap that together with a couple of Bible verses and come in and say, Pastor Dave, surely God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I can do this sin. And I don't know how many times I've heard people say that. And the answer is no. Not everything is lawful. Paul was certainly not talking about things that are outright sin and identified by God that way. And in this very text, just a few verses earlier, he identifies those, some of those things. And so the Corinthians misused this scripture But we came to understand last week that we have an opportunity with God's word, and that is the opportunity for freedom. It is God's word that liberates us from the enslavement of sin. This verse, Romans 1.16, kind of summarizes that when Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the truths of Christ, what we would call God's word and, and all of this message about Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. One of the words you ought to learn, that's kind of a word you don't use very often, is the word mediate. Mediate. God mediates his power through his word. It's not the only way he demonstrates his power. But according to that verse right there and many others, God put his truth in this word and the reason that my speaking accomplishes anything is only because it is God's word that I speak. That's where the power lies. And so God mediates, he sends his power through his word. He mediates his ministry through the body of Christ. God works independently in the world in a numbers of ways, controlling things and so on, but when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, when it comes to showing the love of Christ to people in a, that, are, that are handicapped, you know, the, one of the big parts of that ministry now is a college where young adults will come who are mentally uh, challenged and go to college and they get saved while they're there. Does God do that without the body of Christ? No. He mediates his ministry through. And so we need to understand that the power of God has been, it it comes to us through the Bible. That's why the Bible is so important. And we also need to expand our concept of the word salvation. Now when we see the word salvation, often what we're thinking of is, I get to go to heaven when I die. And that's true. That's an important part of salvation. But salvation encompasses the whole work of God in a person's life. It's rarely used in Scripture only to refer to that destination in heaven. Most often it encompasses the entire work of God in the believer. And that starts with the release from the penalty of sin. That's what the Bible calls justification. You are made righteous in Christ. When you believe in Christ, God takes away that penalty. He put it on Christ when Christ died on the cross so you don't have to pay. Then, 
as you walk through your days of this life, however long they may be, until you die or until the Lord takes you off the planet in the rapture, you are being released from the power of the sin, from the power of sin day by day as you read the scripture, say no to sin, say yes to righteousness, you are being released from the power of sin. Someday, you will be released from the presence of sin itself. 1 John 3 says, when we see him, we will be like him, but we will see him as he is. That's the day I'm looking forward to because my sin nature will be eradicated. My, my, my tendency to sin, my sin nature has been crucified, but all of the, the struggle that I have will be eradicated and I will be completely righteous before Christ. These three aspects of salvation are included every time that word is used. And this is the liberation that God wants to bring to us. The Corinthian believers were living in sin under the worldly myth that the lack of restraint equals personal freedom. Most of the people in our society think that if I have no restraint whatsoever, then I'm free. That's why in recent days, it has become legal to smoke marijuana in our state. You can't tell me what to do. That's why it's become legal for two people of the same sex to become married in this state and many other states. You can't tell me what to do. I wanna be free. And the Corinthians believed that same myth. The lack of restraint equals freedom. But what God wants us to understand in this passage is that real freedom comes from following God's way. God is going to teach us critically important beliefs and behaviors that will enable us not to sin, not to be enslaved by sin. And there's a whole series of these things. This passage, I, I think... If we read it on balance, verses 12 through 20, the big picture that Paul is getting at is sexual morality, being right with God in that area of life. But as God does this, through the Apostle Paul, there are a series of principles that have broad application in the Christian life. And so we're going to try to understand those both in that specific reference and in the broader reference. And so the first one of those principles is this. Righteous behaviors are chosen by value, not just permissibility. The, the big picture that I want to get to today is this. It's not hard to open the Bible and say, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right. I, that's, that's easy, and we need to do it, and I think you know that I've been here a long time. I'm, I'm not afraid to do that. But God also says, here's why this is wrong. Here's why this is right. Here's how to live this out. Here's how to put this into place. And these principles that we are going to learn today are those very things. Behaviors and uh, uh, beliefs that will help us not to sin. And the first one is this. Righteous behaviors are chosen by value, not just permissibility. The Corinthians were looking at life through the lens of permissibility. Paul said everything is okay, and so let's give them the benefit of the doubt now and say they're, they're saying if, as long as it's not sin, I can do anything I want. And the Apostle Paul said, yep, that's true, but there's more to it than that. See, this, this phrase, all things are lawful, again, is not about things that are sinful, we could go right back before this passage and he lists a series of sins and sinful characteristics of life and, and that is not what it's about. But it is about the Old Testament food laws. What food could be eaten and not eaten? And we've talked before about you know the big, the big one that we know is pork, that the Jewish folks could not eat pork. But also um, um, shellfish, would be another category. And then which things could be eaten together. There were all these rules about what was clean and unclean in terms of food. And the Apostle Paul said, all things are lawful. Now, 
when you say to a guy like me, you can eat anything you want. What does a guy like me hear? See, that's what happened to the Corinthians. All things are lawful, and they went, buddy, that's all I need. Church is over. Let's go to the buffet. (laughs) All things are lawful. The issue of clean and unclean, the issues of ritual cleansing in the Old Testament, the the issues of interaction with non-Jewish people, For us, this freedom goes way beyond the ritual law to touch every aspect of life. Everything, now, I know know in this passage, I'm gonna say a lot of things that can be taken wrongly, like the Apostle Paul, when he said everything is lawful and they went crazy in the wrong direction. So you listen to the whole sermon. Everything not named by God as a sin is permissible. I understand that, as did the Apostle Paul. But not everything, here's the qualifiers that Paul puts on it, not everything is helpful. New King James that I'm reading out of, the King James says expedient, the NIV says beneficial, the New American Standard says profitable, and the literal meaning is something like this, to come together for good. To come together for good. In other words, here's all of the parts of your life. Are they coming together in a way that is good, spiritually good for you? Not just happy, not just fun, not just pleasant. Are they coming together in a way that is spiritually good? This is God's expectation for us. The mature Christian, the mature believer evaluates his or her choices based on how they will impact godliness. See, now we're talking a whole, we're we're saying the, the same thing, but we're saying it in two different ways. All things are lawful. And so I am gonna make choices based on what helps me to be more like Christ. We don't come out of a background of following the Old Testament law or any other law, as far as I know, uh, folks. And so we don't have those challenges to work through, but God is talking about our whole life. Things that are not spiritual in and of themselves, but can be used for good or used for harm. Things like music. Music, I'm not talking about the words. I'm not talking about how it gets used. I'm just saying the music itself is not a spiritual issue in and of itself, but it can be used for spiritual good or it can be used for fleshly uh, desires food and drink i struggle to control my eating that is one of my challenges in life i can drive by a thousand taverns and never go in and get drunk not a temptation for me but i don't drive by too many really good donut stores I know where all the best ones are from here to Seattle and beyond. All things are lawful, but not everything builds up. Not everything is good. Not everything is helpful. Food and drink. Clothing. We all have an idea about what nice clothing is, and your idea is just as fine as mine, as long as it's modest. That is the scriptural rule. But... What about the, the, the investment we put into it as in how important it is or how, how much money we spend on it or how much time we spend shopping? All of those things. We say, uh, all things are lawful. Yes, they are. Within the range of modesty. But is it helping you grow up in Christ? Jobs. Can't be anything wrong with getting a job, Right? Can't be anything wrong with getting one a lot of money. The question is, is it going to help you grow up in Christ? Schooling, sports, relationships. None of these things are sinful in and of themselves, but the mature Christian goes beyond what is allowed or permissible to discern what is spiritually helpful. Coming back to the theme that's in this passage of sexual morality, When I was a youth pastor many years ago, 
I was teaching our young people. We, I remember, it's one of those images burned into my mind. We were meeting in our, our little blue house because the church was under construction, so we had Sunday school, I think, maybe it was a youth group, in our house, and there was you know, 30, 40 high school kids in a room that was not that big, and they're just packed in there, and I'm, and I'm trying to talk to them about sexual morality. And I was talking to them about school dances. At that time, I, I don't know what high school dances are like now, but at that time, the common environment and encouragement in a high school, public high school dance, was immoral, basically. And I was talking about that, that you have to be careful for a, for a young man to go and and dance, be in proximity to a young woman who's moving her body and he's moving his, and you have to be very careful with that because there's going to be sexual temptation. And I, you know, I was as open as I could be with them about that, and 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 frankly, they knew that already. But I was telling them they should stay away from the dance so they won't fall into immorality. Okay, I mean that, duh. Okay. You know, that is how it happens. All things are lawful. God didn't say I can't dance. That's right. But what's going to be helpful and build you up in Christ? And this one guy who was, he went on to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force, so you can tell the uh, strength of attitude that he had. The kind, of guy, the kind of airplane that flies right down on the ground and shoots things at close range. I mean, that kind of a guy, you know. He said, yeah, what if you can uh, dance without sinning? And all the kids snickered. <laughs> because they knew what the dance was about and they knew what he was about. Okay? All things are lawful. But I need to think real hard if what I am going to participate in is going to be helpful to me if, if my stated goal is to enter marriage as a virgin, I need to be real careful about the activities I participate in. I need to be real careful about how my dating life is conducted and, and on and on. Not because those are absolute sins and righteousnesses, but because all of these things lead us, pull us, push on us, and I need to think about them. The question is not just, is this thing permissible, but will this activity enhance, strengthen, come together for the good of my spiritual life? We can think about making money. If, you know, if we turn from you know, the temptations of youth to, to something that we normally just think of, oh, making money, that's a good thing. In our pursuit of making a living, we need to ask the same question. Is the job I'm about to get into, the place I'm going to work, the conditions that are there, is, is it going to be uh, helpful or hurtful to my spiritual life? Now, I know none of you work in a place that is as Christian as my workplace. <laughs> I get that. And the goal for the Christian in the working world is not to find a place where it's all Christians. But within the normal workplace, there are some things that are going to be tearing down and some things more challenging and some things less so. Are you going to take a job that leads you to, to you, you always have to work on Sundays and Wednesdays and you can never go to church? Well, that's going to be hard, at least for a while, until you get some seniority. That's going to be real hard on your spiritual life. You need to think about that. And, and, and it's not a matter, I don't get to make a decision for you and tell you what to do. That's not the point. The point is for you to say, okay, all things are lawful. I can take any job I want as long as it's not full of wickedness, you know, the essence of it. I can take any job I want. But what's going to be helpful to me? What's going what's to allow me to live for the Lord? Higher education is another whole tack we can think about is generally thought of not only as acceptable but mandatory by many people and when was the last time you asked a young person how will your college plans enhance your walk with God see we get all focused on money and making money and and kids getting on their own and out of their parents house 
rather than saying, is this going to be a good move for you spiritually? Now, I know the secular college campus where most kids have to go, I know it's a place of wickedness. I get that. And I'm not saying the only thing you can do is go to a Christian college. My question is, have you thought about the impact on your spiritual life and how you're going to manage the impact on your spiritual life wherever it is you go to school? My kids went to a Christian high school. That didn't mean everybody there was Christian. And it didn't mean that I assumed I just kind of sit back, take her easy now. Not on your life. I had to go up there and confront somebody on the staff one day because a guy walked in my office and told me, and I went up and I said, hey, you know, I'm sorry, but this is what I heard. Yeah. I'm not assuming that everything in the world is all easy peasy, whether it's a Christian institution or a non-Christian. What we have to say, am I putting myself into a place Am I putting myself into a place where God can work in my life? The mature believer evaluates his or her choices based on how they will impact godliness. That's the first principle here. See, if you can get a hold of these principles, as you walk through your life, you can make decisions. Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Should I do that? What are the principles that I should come to bear? Number two, the second principle is this. Righteous living is the result of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, not fleshly desires. Look at verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The NIV translates that I will not be mastered. One Greek scholar put it this way. There's actually a play on words here. Paul says, all things are within my power, but I will not be overpowered. He uses the same word in two different ways. And he does that on purpose. All things are within my power. I have the right to make choices, but I will not make choices that overpower me. We often use the word today, enslavement. The world uses the word addiction. Paul makes it clear that even good, permissible things can take over your life and then they become sinful because the Holy Spirit is the one who's supposed to control your life. Don't be drunk with wine and which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I never understood this word as a, as a younger Christian, as a younger pastor, until I was around a lot of people who dissipated their lives. The English word dissipation means, like if I had some water and I poured it out, and you were thirsty, I've dissipated the water. It's not available there for you now. It's all poured out. You give your life to alcohol, and you, you essentially pour out your life for nothing. It dissipates. The life dissipates, it disintegrates, it, it, it goes away until such time as you stop that and, and come back and, 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 and do things the right way. God is making a comparison here, which is a real simple comparison. I, I'm, I'm going to suppose most of you have seen somebody who's drunk or you've seen it portrayed on TV. People take alcohol in or now they take you know, marijuana in or whatever other drug they might take and they get under that influence, driving under the influence, driving while intoxicated. It affects you, and your, your, your physical senses aren't right, and your mental senses aren't right. And so God uses that to say, there are two ways to be controlled in life. Everything else, as an example, I'm gonna use drunk with wine, he says, or you can be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God can so fill your life that you are guided by him in the things of your life. Well, how does he do that? First and foremost, he does it with the word, tucked away up here and down here, and then the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the computer flipping that little switch going, hey, remember that? 
you, you walk up to this decision and you're thinking, should I go left or right on this thing? Should I do this or not do this? And the Holy Spirit goes, hey, you remember that verse you had in Sunday school a couple weeks ago? And the Holy Spirit is able to bring it back. The Holy Spirit is able to bring conviction even without a specific thing. Just we're approaching something and it's like, I'm not sure about that. You know, there's a principle for that. Romans 14, I believe, whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. So as you're approaching some, some choice you need to make, and, and you're thinking, ah, I don't know if I should or I shouldn't. And the debate in 1 Corinthians 6 is between your fleshly desire and the Spirit of God. Here the debate is narrowed, but I, I believe this is just a principle as well. It's an example. Alcohol is a perfect example of something that can overpower the consumer of it. No rocket science there. I, I, I do intend one of these days to preach a whole sermon on, on the whole idea of intoxication. Let me just give you one little principle that'll help you understand God's word about alcohol. I believe they drank fermented alcohol, but if you do the historical research, the common way they drank it was diluted two to three times with water. And they did that because they knew when they drank water alone, they got sick. That's why Paul said, Timothy, Take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're oft infirmaments. In, in firm, in he had problems with his stomach because he was teetotaling for some reason. And that's my position as well, but today we don't have a problem with pure water. Maybe it tastes bad once in a while. Ferndale isn't paying attention to what they're doing. but They diluted it with water. And so if you have wine that's been cut with water three to four times, the alcohol content isn't going to hit you so much as the bladder content. I mean, unless you're really, you're determined to get drunk. And by the way, if you haven't been listening to unbelievers at your workplace when they talk about alcohol, they are talking about getting drunk. And it is a topic of discussion, and it is what they live for. And so, uh, uh, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, and I will not be mastered. And so with alcohol, the potential for mastery is there. Um, does, does God condemn drunkenness? No, he does not. I mean, yes, he does. <laughs> does God condemn the drinking of alcohol? No. Does that make it permissible? Yes. Does that make it advisable? Not necessarily. Okay. Permission, and that's the point. That's what I want you to get. Permission doesn't equal approval by God. Because it's more complicated than that. Alcohol is certainly something that overpowers people. Food overpowers people. Entertainment overpowers people. There's new categories of addiction created by the American Psychological Society all the time as our society changes. Are you addicted? I don't know whether you are or not. Can you put it down and walk away and read your Bible? Well, I don't really have time for that. All things are lawful, but if you can't have time for God's word because of any activity, something is not right. Possessions, clothing. Uh, my dad had some kind of an acquaintance. I don't know how he met him. When I was in college, this fella died, and my dad said, he is about your size, and he was a real, my dad called it a, being a clothes horse. And you can go get some clothes from you know, he's got all these clothes. I went into the guy's basement. It was just clothes rack after clothes rack after clothes rack. Brand new stuff with the tag still on. Stuff that had been bought at places like Nordstrom or Frederick and Nelson, things like that. I got a couple real nice sport coats. Because that guy was into clothes. Why? I have no idea. You know? Our society uses words like hoarding, or sex addiction, or alcoholism, or drug addiction to describe what God calls overpowering sin. Now I know that with some 
things that you put in your body, they become physical, and there is a physical addiction. I learned something really scary recently. You know, I've, I've had a couple of surgeries in recent years, and this last time I was prescribed OxyContin as a pain reliever. And I was just at a seminar, a counseling seminar, when they said, when you take opioids long term for pain, it shuts off your serotonin production in your brain. Your body doesn't need to produce it, so it stops producing it. And then when you're ready to quit the pain relievers, you're left with whatever it was giving you is not there, and your own bodily process is not there, and you're in a world of hurt. I thought, man, I don't want to get there, you know? I don't know, I don't know when that kicks in, but, but yes, there can be physical things that, that, that complicate saying no to sin, and all the more reason for us to say, I am not going to be overpowered by anything. Our society cannot explain why harmful behavior cannot be stopped. God has an explanation. Sin is overpowering. Even some good things can become overpowering. One commentator put it this way. Often a man says, I will do what I like. When he means that he will indulge the habit or passion which has him in its grip. Look back at 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any foods for the stomach, stomach, and, and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy both it and them. The principle is primarily about things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but clearly... The following verses, verse 13, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, essentially Paul is bringing in the idea of sexual activity and he's saying, yes, sex within God's normal limit of marriage is okay, it is lawful. The Corinthians were saying, all things are lawful. That means I can do what I want. They were going way beyond. But what God is really telling us here is he's warning us that sin can control us. In that regard, in that regard of control, one of the most significant sins mentioned is sex outside of marriage. Christians give in to their desire for sex even though it is sinful believing they can control such sinful behavior. But God warns that it will overpower you. The very first psalm gives us the progression of sin. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He's using this visual image of a, of a man. Here's a man who's Let's imagine this is the place of sin and I'm standing here. I'm standing here where the sinners are promoting their sin. And he says, you, the way to be blessed, this word means happy in the Old Testament, the way to be happy is don't stand there. Get away. And, and what happens though is we stand and then we walk. Oh, just a little. And then we walk and then once we have given in, we sit right down with the sin and we're comfortable right there. And that's what happens. We're sucked in. We, we don't think we are. We think we're going to be in control. It doesn't take much interaction with sin for it to begin to grip your soul. I had a friend years ago who was sexually abused as a boy and he began looking at pornography and participating in sexual sin of various kinds. And that slowed down when he became a Christian as a young adult. He thought, okay, I'm, I'm over this. But he didn't really deal with it. And even when he got married, and, and he just kept investing in sin. He kept investing in sin until one day he was standing at his front window, exposing himself to the neighbor lady. And people say, that guy, why would he do that? I know that guy, he works here, he goes to church there, he has a lovely family, he's a nice guy. Why is he doing that? I'll tell you why, because sin is overpowering. 
You think, you think oh, I can, I can just stand here. No. Later, and we're going to get to this principle next week, he says, flee. Run, turn and go the other direction. Not just from sexual temptation, but any temptation. You think, oh, I can manage sin. Really? You can click on that image and do it just once. You can read that thing just once. You can have a wrong relationship just once. You can stop your sinful behavior anytime you want then you will be the one person in history who can control sexual sin. The warning that Paul is giving to the Corinthians is repeated this way by principle in Galatians 5. For brethren, you have been called to liberty. All things are lawful. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Careful of your flesh. Your flesh wants to pull you in a way that is not good. Stay back. Stay away from it. God calls us to use freedom, the freedom he has given us very carefully so that we don't live in an ungodly way. And here's how he tells us to do it right here. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your righteousness as a believer, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You're either living by the flesh or you're living in the spirit, and it takes effort, it takes planning, it takes confession. How do we maintain our bodies to honor God by avoiding the things that can overpower us? The third principle and the last one we're gonna look at from this passage today is this. Righteous living is based on the divine purpose of our body, not its natural functions. Look again at verse, um, verse 13. Um, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Paul appears to be responding to an argument put forward by these people that went like this. God made me with a stomach and the ability to digest food, and so that's what it's for. Bring it. God made me with sexual capability. It's the natural use of the body, so bring it. And the Apostle Paul says, wait a minute, you don't understand the purpose of your physical body. We eat because that's how our bodies are designed. We do other things because that's how our bodies are designed. It's just natural, so it can't be wrong. When our girls were little in grade school, we were part of the PTA at the public school. Sue and I went to a meeting and they were talking about, I went in particular because they were talking about the health education and we went to support abstinence education when it comes to sexuality. And you can imagine about the way the debate went and the discussion went, and it was civil, but uh, there was a couple people that were at least a little heated, and I was probably one of them. Um, and we had to leave early. Some other meeting we had to go to, so we, we said, well, we gotta go, so we got up to go, and another couple had to leave early too, and when we got outside, this other guy, addressed me down about uh, my uh, position for abstinence and the basis, now we're talking grade schoolers, okay? But the basis of it was this. It's a natural urge. People are gonna do it. So just give them the protection. That's what the Corinthians were saying. I expect to hear that from an unbeliever. I don't expect to hear it from a Christian. The Corinthians were going, it's natural, The natural desires and designs of your body do not define right behavior. We want it to define right behavior because it feels good, but it does not. I need to eat because I am human, and I love to eat because it feels good, 
And that is exactly why I have to work at evaluating what I eat because my body was not created for personal satisfaction. Look at this. God is going to destroy. Now, he doesn't say he's going to destroy the body. He said he's going to destroy the, the, the process of eating. And he says sexuality is going to go away as well. In heaven, we, it, it appears we will be able to eat but not required to do so. And there will be no sexuality. We, hear, we learn that from a reference, no, no expression of sexuality, no giving in marriage as, as Christ said. And, and so there is a long-term purpose, but it's based on the purpose of our body. So to, to understand that, we go back to creation, and, and, and we put on our sanctified imagination, and we say, what do you suppose God said up in heaven when he created men and women and put them on the planet? You suppose he stepped back and said, wow, I wonder what they're going to do. Just run along and do whatever feels good. No. Right from the beginning, God made a claim on humanity. There was a do and a don't. And the do was God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing. They they were supposed to build a family, build the human race, and they were supposed to take care of the earth. That was the do. And the don't was... Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There was a do and there was a don't. There was a claim by God on the use of the body right from the beginning. And so when we, that's when we read 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the body is for the Lord. Food is naturally for the body, sex is naturally for the body, but immoral sex is not naturally for the body. That is an unjustified logical jump. Sex inside of marriage is for the Lord, and the proper use of food is for the Lord. There is a higher purpose for your body than just physical existence and physical pleasure. And the Christian who would succeed in godliness The Christian who would succeed in saying no to sin and yes to Christ has to embrace that purpose. There is a higher purpose for my body than just physical existence and physical pleasure. Verse 13 talks about the transience of food and sexual activity. And one author put it this way, the fact that God will one day destroy the natural order that is now known proves that biological functions don't ultimately determine man's moral obligations. And then he talks about one thing that we'll just touch on, verse 14. God is going to raise us up. Here's the reality of the destiny for our life. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is where we belong is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Your body was created by God, saved by Jesus, and will someday be perfected and reunited with your spirit in heaven. And so shall you ever be. And that's why our body is not for any kind of sin, especially sexual immorality. Our plan for picking up Caleb and Jacob from the other grandparents who had him had them uh, had our boys, our grandsons there for the first half of the week. Our plan was to meet the other grandma at Bellevue Square, uh, Bellevue Square Mall. I don't know if you could tell by the way that I dress, but I don't hang out at the Bellevue Square Mall a lot. Um, it's a little shishi for me. <laughs> been a long time since I went to the Bell Square Mall, but I assumed I could get there without the GPS unit, and I was right. I got, I got off, you know, I, I, I lived in Bellevue for a few months, did an internship there many years ago, and so I got off, I drove right down, there I am right at the mall, and there's an entrance to the parking, and I was supposed to meet her on the third floor near the Nordstrom's entrance, and I immediately thought, oh, I bet there's more than one side to the Nordstrom entrance. But I turned in, 
go around and around, and I get up to a Nordstrom entrance, and I look about, and there's no grandma and no little boys. And so I think, well, I'm going to try going to the other side of Nordstrom. I know there's another parking, so I go over to the other parking, and I go around and around, and I get up to the third floor of Nordstrom's, and there's no grandma. <clears throat> so I humbled myself and called and said, now which side of Nordstrom's are you on? And she was like, I said, are you on the east side or the west side? And it was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> I don't know. Well, is it closer to 405 or the other way? I don't know. <laughs> and I saw a security guy there. I go, hey, uh, can you, uh, you know, tell me which side's which here and how to get around? He goes, well, I'll lead you back around to the other side. I wasn't sure if I'd been on the other side yet. Maybe there's three sides. So I follow him around, and, and he pulled off and parked in the bottom, and I kind of followed him, and I realized, no, I shouldn't have followed him. I should have gone up and around, around, around to the place where I started. And there they were, finally. And the first time they were in the store hanging out. God has not only given us the destination for our Christian life, which is to be like Christ, but he's given us very clear instructions and those clear instructions primarily come in the form of principles. Because the, you know, we can look and say, well, don't lie and don't steal. and you know, We could draw a, a handful of those things. And, but once we get done with that, there's all kinds of choices to be made in life. And we need these principles, things that build up, things that don't overpower the right use of my body. We need those principles so that we might get to that destination of godliness and not wander on the path between here and there. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your truth in very explicit terms, in clear terms. Help us to remember these principles today and help us to apply them as we go from this place. Thank you for making it possible that we don't have to be overpowered by sin, that we don't have to waste our life in things that are harmful. Father, if there's somebody here today who's, who's struggling because of, a, one, of these, one of these things in their life that we've been talking about that's perhaps overpowered or perhaps been hurtful, would you please liberate them today? Would you start them on the path? Father, if there's people here today that have never believed in Christ, would you help them to see that the Christ life is where they need to be? I pray in Christ's name, amen.